0: Well, we're in the midst of a series where we're looking at the doctrine of union with Christ and how it meets with various lies of identity that are current in our culture. And last week we looked at the lie, I am what I own. And we saw that the issue is not about having things or owning things in themselves or even owning nice or expensive things, though admittedly that that can be dangerous. The problem is how we use our possessions to create an identity apart from God. So we use our things to establish value and meaning as markers of class and status. You know, I am this thing and this thing is me and it's a denial whether we realize it or not, and usually we don't, uh, of who God says we are. And He says, no, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And people without Christ can't help but do this sort of thing. Apart from Christ, humans use anything and everything to create meaning and value and worth. And in a sense, every lie we will consider in this series is a version of idolatry and or legalism. Now, as Christians, as people who are in Christ, the problem is that by giving into these lies, we are actually pursuing worldly patterns, really just like a pagan naturally does, where we attempt self-definition like we are our own private little tower of Babel, as if we are not in Christ. It's why Paul, early in the book of Galatians, says his people had believed a different gospel. Well... Our passage this morning is, in a sense, uh, the entire book of Galatians, but that's impractical to read for a sermon. So we'll focus on just two passages this morning together. One is Galatians 2.20, and the second is Galatians 3.23-29. through Let me read for us. First, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And Jumping down to 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have together as your people to meditate on this word of Paul's. And I pray that we would have eyes to see Jesus ever more clearer. The spirit would be at work in us to see that we are not our own. That we were bought at such a great price and that we... Are no longer isolated individuals. We belong to one body together that belongs to you. That individually, even, we all belong to you. So we pray that this time would be good for that. And Lord, a special prayer as I think of it. We pray for Emily Hartley, who was in a a bad accident on Friday. We pray for her body and her heart and her mind that you would heal her from that car accident. And for The young lady who was traveling with her, I don't know any details about her, but I'm sure she is injured too. So I pray for her as well and their respective families that you bless them and keep them in this really tough time. We pray all of this because we trust you and because we know you can do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so whatever that thing is you do, your job, your hobby your special skill, that thing makes you who you are. That thing becomes the center of your identity and it sets you apart from the crowd. That thing makes you who you are. So for example, the documentary uh, movie, Hero Dreams of Sushi is about arguably the best living sushi master in the world at the time. He was 85 when that movie was made and it came out several years years ago and everything in his life as they follow him everything in his life is centered on the craft the art of making sushi including his family life and as the title of the movie suggests even his non-waking life so Hiro isn't passionate he's obsessive about sushi he thinks that's a good thing he thinks that's what is required and that everyone, whether you're a sushi master or not, that everyone should be that way about something. So he is sushi and sushi is him. Virtually everyone who is considered the GOAT, you know, the greatest of all time, doesn't merely like or, or love their work or merely work hard or is passionate about it. They're obsessive. They're obsessive. But even when we are not the GOAT, people will still give their lives over to whatever activity. Like like so many parents and kids I I knew and I saw in St. Louis that pursued sports as the end-all, be-all of life, as if life is found in sport. And in some instances, like with our jobs, What we do becomes the marker of status and class. It's why what do you do is never purely a question about your gifting or your talents, but rather is deeply rooted in economics. So for some parents, it is unthinkable. It is unthinkable that their children would not go to college and pursue white collar jobs. And yet for others, it is unthinkable that their children would waste time and money on college. And I would suggest that more often than not, these are issues of class and not actually of gifting or how best to serve God with our lives. At least over the course of my time as a youth and a college pastor, I rarely, if ever, heard parents say, honey. Can we look at what talents and gifts you have and see how best you may serve the Lord with your life? It was almost always, do you want to be flipping burgers for the rest of your life? In other words, it's a question of status and class and economics. And because we have believed the lie that you are what you do, not only does our job or talent take on an oversized role in our life, success in turn has become the measure. So the promise of this lie, I am what I do, is that being good at a specific job or reaching the pinnacle of whatever, having worked really hard, put in all the hours, always hustling, will give you, and this is the American dream, the meaning and satisfaction you've always wanted. So you will have arrived. You will have made something of yourself and will have value and worth. And the best part about it is that you will have earned it. And of course, what counts as successful or as an achievement is contextual. So you know, very few people care about making it into the NBA because most people recognize you have to win the genetic lottery to even have a chance at it. No, we set our sights on things that are more realistic and will in turn garner value and worth in the eyes of our peers or our parents or whoever we think matters. So we don't envy or compete with Elon Musk. No, we envy and compete with our neighbors. But here's the unspoken reality, you can hustle, you can grind it out. You can work as hard as you can do. go. You can do everything the rules of success tell you to do and still not be successful. Still not be successful. Or worse, this is so much worse, you'll be successful and miserable. So just ask Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, you know, two of the most successful golfers of the last 40 years. Both men have worked really hard. Both men have reached the pinnacle of success, achievement, adoration, and wealth. It's impossible to talk about golf over the last, what, quarter century without mentioning them. And both men are miserable. You know, one man wrecked his marriage through adultery with countless women. The other has accumulated over 40 million in gambling debts. So if you think success equals happiness, I am what I do, think again. All the evidence points to the contrary, and yet we not only believe this lie, we teach this ethic to our kids as the good life. So if you are what you do, then you will never be anything more than your greatest success. We're going to deal with that lie in a couple of weeks. Or on the flip side, you will be forever, forever dogged by your failures and your lack of achievement? Just ask Charles Barkley. We're going to take that up in a couple of weeks, too. There's always someone lurking in the wings who's younger, who's better, who's prettier, and more talented than you. And one day, Hero and his dreams of sushi will not just end, they will be forgotten, and a new goat will be crowned. Well, like we saw with last week with what we own, the problem is, is not work itself, though clearly it's been frustrated to some degree by sin, or the problem is not having talents or skills. The issue isn't even working hard or, or having achievements or being passionate about what you do. No, God, God made us to work and to be curious and to have stewardship and dominion over at least some section of the world, whether little or lot. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's, that's bound up with being a human. No, the issue is that sinful humanity apart from God can't help but try to justify ourselves. And so we use our jobs or our talents or our roles as a means of doing that, of justifying ourselves as a way of asserting or proving to others that we have value and worth. So for example, if you have a good job, and we usually define good jobs based purely on economics, then by definition, you have value and worth. So the more you're paid, The more influential you are, the more degrees you have, the more responsibility or authority you have, the greater the corner office, the better and more valuable you are. On the flip side, the less money you make, the less influence you have, the less education, the less authority or responsibility, the less valuable you are. So instead of the clothes making the man, the job makes the man. It's why, for example, the, the distinction between working moms and stay-at-home moms is based on the idea that one, stay-at-home moms aren't really working because two, they aren't receiving a paycheck for their work as if moms in the homes are producing value and worth. Kids, it's a myth. It's a myth. And it's a myth that is based on the assumption that a person's value is really only measured in what they are compensated financially. It's why I am what I own is directly related to I am what I do. The reason we are so curious about what people do for a living and why it's a huge source of insecurity for most men Is not because we're interested in how God has gifted someone and is using them in service to his kingdom. That would be way too Christian. It's because we want to assign value to a person and size him up against ourselves. It's why when people first hear I'm a doctor, they are almost always impressed. But when they hear I'm a PhD, it changes. Oh, you're not a real doctor. That's economics, not education. And it's the reason it stings and hits my pride so hard. It's why the Ivy League is still so attractive, right? It's not because a person is necessarily getting a better education as an undergraduate, maybe, maybe not. It's because an Ivy League education confers status. You are your Princeton education, which gives you access to better jobs, and in turn, higher wages and a higher class of people. This takes us to Galatians. Well, Paul's basic critique of the Galatians is that they had denied the gospel by attempting to live as if they had not received the Spirit, and this was brought out over the issue of circumcision. Now, the issue is not merely circumcision, but what these Christians thought circumcision would do for them. So apparently some Jewish Christians had come to this small congregation and told them that it was not enough to be in Christ, no matter what Jesus Himself said. They needed to take on Jewish customs too, in particular the Old Covenant symbol of circumcision. And of course, in the Old Testament, circumcision is a huge deal. It's part of the law. And Moses, for example, was nearly struck dead before entering Egypt, even as he was called to be, in a word, Israel's Messiah, because he had neglected to circumcise his sons. And what's more, if a Gentile wanted to become part of Israelite society, the males, at least, were required to be circumcised. So there's history here. And in the centuries after this, after Galatians, after the first century, this belief among Jewish people... Especially as Christianity grew and spread, this belief among Jewish people only intensified, really over the next four or 500 years. But the issue is not the actual performance of the ritual or the receiving of the sign itself, as if circumcision in and of itself, like any other of the 660 laws of the Old Testament, confers life and righteousness. It doesn't. Circumcision does not give you life. The law was never capable of making us right with God, let alone giving us a a new heart. As God makes clear with Abraham, circumcision is a tangible symbol, a mark of the covenant like the rainbow with Noah, of God's promise to redeem the world through Abraham's offspring, the coming Messiah, who eventually showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. So like with Passover, Jesus made circumcision obsolete so the issue with circumcision in the Galatian church, as is well known, is an issue of legalism and self-righteousness, but not in the way many Christians think. As Grant McCaskill argues, there there are times when legalism uh, shows up in the form of someone believing that his good works actually earns him salvation with God or proves his his righteousness, and of course. Uh, we reject that sort of thinking out of hand. And so we, we tend to think legalism is a problem for other people or uh, other more works, righteous traditions or churches that don't preach grace like we do. Typically, however, legalism and or you know, self-righteousness is more often than not, it's, it's not about our standing before God. It's about our standing before other people. Let me say that again. Legalism, more often than not, has nothing to do with our standing before God. And it has everything to do with our standing before other people. So in Galatians 1, Paul speaks of being a Pharisee, zealously pursuing Jewish tradition before becoming a Christian. And though he was outwardly pursuing god it was really social standing among the jews that he was after he used jewish religious traditions to gain that standing and as he says in, in chapter 1 verse 16 after jesus was revealed in him is the literal greek his life as a pharisee ended peter after he had come to faith, was openly, and it took him a while to get there, but he was openly having table fellowship. That is, the Lord's Supper, like we are going to be doing here in a few minutes, he was doing this with Gentiles in Antioch. You see, before Christ, and this has nothing to do with the law, nothing, but rather Jewish cultural traditions, Jews did not eat or have fellowship or even go in their homes with Gentile dogs is how they thought about it. And you can see this at work in Peter's life in Acts 10 with him, in Acts 10 with him wrestling on this, this Jewish cultural thing of getting over this Jewish separateness and coming to accept Gentiles as equals in God. And the gospel, you see, purposely brings Jews and Gentiles together, and Peter was living out the radical implications of the gospel until Jewish Christians from Jerusalem showed up and they applied pressure on him. And he, in turn, denied the gospel by shying away from his Gentile brothers and sisters. And this had nothing to do with how Peter thought God saw him. No, it was about how other Jews, Jewish Christians, saw him. So it's not about how we look in God's eyes that most often concerns us. And I seriously doubt Peter actually believed circumcision saved anyone. No, it's how we look in other people's eyes. It's the reason Paul gives in Galatians 6, verses 12 and 13, about why these outside Jewish people were pushing circumcision on this Gentile church. You know, by telling them they didn't fit in with what counts as being a proper Jew, the Jewish Christians were creating social capital for themselves. It's just like when you know, so-called popular people... You know, create barriers or distinctions for non-popular people. You are not one of us. And to be one of us, you have to meet whatever standard we set. So, for example, when people feel guilty for skipping church or not spending time in God's word, it's typically not because they're worried about what God thinks of them. If they were, they would have shown up. It's rather because they know this is what Christians are supposed to do, and they don't want to look bad among other Christians. Though arguably that, that Christian uh, sense of social capital is quickly fading away, and it has lost uh, its hold on, on society in general. In the broadest sense though, legalism is trying to be an autonomous, moral agent apart from God. This is exactly what Adam tried to do, and in turn, attempting to build social capital or status or justification or self-righteousness with other people. Like with the Tower of Babel, we attempt to make a name for ourselves. This is just what sinful humanity does. And among God's people, this is a denial of the gospel because it rejects the reality that every Christian is indwelled by the same Lord Jesus Christ. What's fascinating is that Christians do this this using the true religion, to be sure. That was Paul as a Pharisee. It's Peter among the Jews. It's the Galatians with circumcision. But Christians can just as easily Pursue legalism in more secular terms, which I think is the most common way for us. Well, here's Paul's response to this situation in this church. This is 2.20. I'm going to read it again because it's key to this whole series. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, if you belong... To Jesus, you were really and truly crucified with him at Golgotha. That's how God sees it. You have been atoned for. The law no longer has a hold on you. As it was promised with the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, God has given you a new heart with his law written on it. That means in turn that you are actually and truly united to him right now through the spirit. And you've been given a new identity, a whole new being in Christ. And Paul is not being figurative when he says you are in Christ. He's literal. He's literal. The same is true for us, uh, true for his use of the phrase, you are a new creation, in places like 2 Corinthians 5. That's not a metaphor for some kind of spiritual enrichment. No, he actually means that you are, though you are waiting on the resurrection of your body, and we all feel that, you are already a new creation in Christ. And you are already participating in Christ's life and the life to come. This is the radical claim of Christianity that the God who made the heavens and the earth indwells bodily his people. No other religion makes that claim. None. This is what makes Christianity unique. And this is exactly what he has in view, for example, with Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. we already read it, but I'm going to read part of this again. For in Christ Jesus, there's that language again, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on, Christ. So, this life or this identity, as we would talk about it as modern people, is a gift and it's not your creation. It's not something you cultivate apart from God and you do not define the terms of the relationship. That's that's what the Galatians were trying to do through circumcision, even though they had already been baptized into Christ. And when you are in Christ, you are no longer. An isolated individual, separated from God by your sin. You know, you are—you're literally Paul in Christ, or Rob in Christ, and there is no you without Him. So the old life has gone; the new life has come. And as we said a few weeks ago, being a Christian, then it's not like cosplay, as they say it these days—you costume. Play. It's not putting on a costume at Halloween. It's not one more outfit we wear alongside other outfits. You know, as many Christians mistakenly think, because this is how modern nihilistic society works, there's, you know, what you wear to the beach and what you wear to the game and what you wear to the hunt camp and what you wear to church and what you wear to the dance. And in turn, there are behaviors and roles that go along with those costumes as if being a Christian is just one more of them. As if it's just one more costume, one more role we play. No, when Paul speaks of putting on the new self in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, he's not talking about playing a part. You know, so often Christians read Paul as saying, through Christ you've been forgiven and atoned for. Now, go do good works. And by the way, here's a bit of the Holy Spirit that functions like the force to help you on your way no that you are able to do good at all that you have begun to desire to keep the law is not your work it is christ that is at work within you there is no good thing you do apart from him who is in you go back to what paul says in chapter three if you were baptized into christ then you put on christ those two things go together and are inseparable So Christ is not your co-pilot. He's not your lifeline. He's not your Jiminy Cricket. No, the one through whom and for whom all things were made indwells you through His Spirit. And the life you now live, you live through and to Him who is in you. So you're no longer marked out as belonging to the world or to yourself. You, You don't. Listen to this. You don't have to justify anything about yourself. There is nothing to prove, nothing to gain, no status to keep up. No, you are not your own, but instead you belong, body, heart, mind, soul, every last cell of your being to this God who indwells you. You are not what you own. Praise God. You are not what you own. You are not what you do. You are not your sin. You are not your good works. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. And because of that, you are the sons and daughters of God. This is why both in 1 Corinthians and here in Galatians, Paul says that pursuing an identity apart from God is a denial of Christ, as if social status or value as determined by what we own or what we do, or, or like we will see next week, I am what people think of me. As if those things will give us added meaning on top of what we already have in Christ, as if Christ is not enough. Now, of course, we, we are not so much uh, taken in by circumcision as an issue. You know, we, we can sniff out the obvious religious legalism that sounds like holier-than-thou-isms or daily quiet times, or perhaps a subtle or not so subtle pride in what we have put in the offering plate. That sort of legalism doesn't appeal to us because it doesn't hold social capital with us anymore. I mean, no one is impressed by that. So we we just reject it out of hand. And you know what? Good. Rightly so. No, we're taken in by secular modes of legalism. So it's Our jobs, or our hobbies, or our skills that give us value and meaning, both inside the church and outside it. Like what Jesus teaches about trying to worship God and money, inevitably, God comes to be defined by money. So it is when we believe that we are what we do. So like the Galatian Christians, we we may claim Christ and his atoning sacrifice and absolutely mean it. But we are really pursuing what we are really pursuing is is status and relevance apart from him. So for good reason, the requirements Paul gives for church leadership have nothing to do, nothing to do with success and achievement, let alone what a man does for his career. They have everything to do with spiritual maturity and character. You know, Paul wasn't looking for bankers to be deacons or lawyers to be elders. He was looking for men in whom it was clear that Christ, through His Spirit, was at work in them. It's why the fruit of the Spirit is a list of character traits, not a list of pertinent jobs or skills. Now, to be sure, it is great to have bankers and CPAs and lawyers and physicians in this church, but their character matters far more than their skills, or their talents, or their achievements, or their wealth, or their class, or their status. Like with last week then, the answer to this lie is not to devalue work or acting as if our skills or talents or gifts don't matter. That's ridiculous. That's a knee-jerk reaction and is, at best, false humility. We were made to work. We were given skills and talents to be for the betterment of other people. And we should not be lazy. We should be productive. It's good to be passionate about what you do. You won't hear me say otherwise. Even so, not once will you find the Bible relating a person's value and worth with her economic value. Sinful humans do that. But God does not. No, with Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, white collar nor blue collar, working mom nor stay at home mom. Now, of course, God does not do away with distinctions and roles. There are still kings and peasants, there's still rich and poor. It's rather that our roles are not determinative of our value. No, God Himself establishes our value and worth at our creation and we are his image bearers and then he just reaffirms it and ramps it up even more by making his home in us so one of the ways then you see this spirit-filled life lived out this life that is no longer under the law as Paul talks about it here but is in Christ is often in small Ordinary and mostly overlooked ways. It's why Paul commends in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 that believers pursue quiet and unaspiring lives of service to each other. It's the difference between success, which is I am what I do, and significance I am Rob in Christ. It's the difference between living for self and living for Christ and neighbor. You see, success looks like trophies. It looks like winning. It looks like chasing after your dreams and getting them. It looks like, well, it looks like the diplomas on my walls. And you know what, those things are fine as far as they go. It's what we think those things do for us in creating value and worth, and in turn, how we use them to set ourselves against others significance, significance, on the other hand, is looking to be of value and use to others. It's putting other people ahead of yourself. It's why Paul, when he speaks about humility as one of the defining features of the people of God, that's Philippians 2, he begins with Jesus. He begins with Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who did not pursue glory or honor. He did not need to bring attention to himself or fight for his status. No, he humbled himself and faithfully submitted his life to God, the Father, allowing God to glorify him instead. And he did it for us and our salvation. That's why as a coach, my favorite award to give out, my favorite award to give out is always the coach's award and it goes to the student who has pursued the success of others above his own. Now we of course love the standout athletes, of course we do, but the athlete who gives himself for the sake of his teammates and their success is what makes team sports beautiful in my mind and actually enables an MVP to be an MVP you know i've had success and achievements and, and like when i purchase something new and shiny you know success and achievements they do they do give a fleeting sense of self-worth and value it's why we love trophies it's why we love them it's why millionaire athletes continue to pursue championship rings but in the end nobody really cares nobody really cares about my trophies nobody Walks in my office ever mentions my diplomas? And with time, I found I don't really care about them either. You know, being in Christ has given me more meaning and contentment and satisfaction through significance than I've ever gotten through any wards or social standing, and I assumed those things would give it to me. And that significance has come with things like changing blowout diapers, or holding people's hands who are in pain or close to death, or coaching kids who are of infinite value to God, but perhaps they will not go on to professional or collegiate athletic or musical careers, and in turn, they don't improve my resume. As Chad Bird recently put it, names are written in the book of life, resumes are not. I will take significance over success every time, every time, because I've learned through Christ's patient teaching of me and my sometimes in response angry and bitter tears that I am not what I do. You are not your jobs. You're not your paycheck. You're not your skills. You're not your talents. You're not your roles or your achievements or your failures. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Let me pray for us as we go on to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace and mercy and kindness, and that you have chosen to make your home in us through your Son and the power of the Spirit. There is no greater gift, no greater status, so we will boast in you.